Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Charlotte. Our pronouns are she, her. This is Demyth Turns the Page. Our special episodes where we make bargains. We deal with consequences of those bargains. And we get romantic for Valentine's Day with Laura Thalassa. I probably should have checked how to pronounce your surname before I said that. <laughs> no, you nailed it. <laughs> Hi, Laura, and happy Valentine's Day. Before we get started on your book, what's your favorite love song? And it doesn't have to be traditional. Oh, gosh. What's my favorite love song? Oh, so many. Why did you just spring this one on me? Um, I love the one that I danced to at my wedding was, I believe it actually was called Love Song by 311. <laughs> but anyway, I absolutely adore that song. Well, you have a lovely moment and a lovely memory for it. So now we know your favorite love song. Can you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Absolutely. Hi, everybody. My name is Laura Thalassa. I am a new adult romance fantasy author of the Four Horsemen series, the Bargainer series, and a few other series. I know we were chatting about this before we started recording, but what kind of books do you like to read? You know... I really do. I tend to prefer reading paranormal or fantasy. Most of all romance. I should just, I guess that that's the most important one. I will read contemporary romance. I'll read fantasy romance. I'll read monster romance. I'll read science fiction romance. I'll read all of it. I'm much more likely to read any one of the subgenres of romance than I am anything outside of it because I love a good love story. But my first love is definitely paranormal romance and fantasy romance. So, yeah, I like reading what I write. <laughs> I mean, not, <laughs> that definitely sounded like I like reading my own books, but I like reading the same genre I write in. <laughs> and why not? Why not like your own books? I can't do it. Actually, it's really tough. I actually, um, this Bargainer series, I re-edited the whole series last year. And it is like nails on a chalkboard for me to read the stuff that I've already written I'm not sure why I just I don't like going back to it but I'm I'm not a big rereader either for other books so it, it might have something to do with that but it also is just hard because then I can see I usually have like my editing mind on when I'm going through so it's always like oh gosh I wish I had written this differently like I maybe I can tweak this sentence but um yeah, I don't think I can really casually read my own books like I would read other people's. So, And you've mentioned you re-edited these last year and they were re-released in January with stunning new covers. Why, why is that? Why did you re-release them? I, you know what, I may, I, well, I'm self-published and these books have been out now for, I think the first one came out in 2016 and, um, they were self-published. At the time, I was a pretty small author when I released them. I didn't really have an editing team. I didn't have beta readers. I didn't have sensitivity readers. And I was approached by Bloom Publishing, which is my U.S. publisher for the series. And they had asked if they could buy the rights to it. And um, I said, Absolutely. And I didn't want to edit too much, but I did want some sensitivity reads and I did add in a couple of extra scenes throughout the series. So um, it was kind of like to give it an appropriate freshen up 
you know, after the five years or whatever since it's been out, since people have, are still reading it. So, and what is it about romance that draws you to writing it? You know, I think for me, when I, this is probably going to tie in more with, you know, before I was a writer, I was an avid reader. And I think for me, there's such, there was always such escapism in books and particularly romance, where I feel like I so loved really confident main characters. And I love seeing them being treated really well. And I love seeing them getting their happily ever after. And, you know, the real world is not always like that. So it's, for me, it was such a comfort to escape into worlds where even if bad things happen, you know, it's going to be okay in the end. I'm not sure all genres necessarily promise that, but I also just, I love, I love watching, reading about whatever, falling in love. Like, I feel like that's a really, I, I don't know, it's a really fun, magical thing. So uh, yeah, I just kind of, I've always gravitated towards it. And what, in your opinion, is so sexy about fairies? <laughs> you know, it's so funny because when I, well, pointed ears are always great, I should just say, but um, <laughs> it's funny because I didn't really set out to write fairies in this book because I found them incredibly sexy. This actually, this whole series started out, was, I think back in 2014, I was invited to participate in a novella or an anthology where I would contribute a novella. And the anthology was all about creatures who were affected by the moon. And I was pretty, like, I was invited pretty late in the game. So all the really, like, obvious ones, like werewolf, vampire, they'd already been chosen. And I remember sitting there being like, what, what sort of magical creature could I write about that would be affected by the moon? And that's when I think at the time, my name for it was like a dark fairy but then as I like sort of started to build out who this like love interest was going to be, he was, so he became like, well, he's not just a fairy. He's got to be, you know, he's got to be a king of some, you know, fey realm. And he was ruled by night. So we just kind of became, well, he is um, going to be the king of the night realm. And kind of from there, everything kind of was built around that initially, because that was essentially the key component of being in that anthology <laughs> but then the anthology fell apart and I sat on this um idea for a while and to be quite honest I'm not sure I ever would have even finished the story idea um once the once the anthology fell through because I'd moved on to other projects but I had I had put up a couple of teasers and I just kept getting messages by readers that were like begging me to finish that story and put it out and so I essentially finished writing the story and put it out and um and now in retrospect fairies are huge but at the time I was writing this I mean part of this was before even the first A Court of Thorns and Roses had been put out like a lot of people think that this book was inspired by that series, but I actually also almost didn't publish the book once I read the first book in that series and thought, oh my God, if she makes that other guy the love interest, people are going to think I ripped this idea. And so my husband actually talked me into publishing it anyway. But yeah, I just, it's kind of funny in retrospect. I never imagined sitting here now, like six, seven years after I published this book, 
and fairies are kind of a big thing because at the time it was just they weren't they weren't a well-known like love interest like it was still kind of vampires and stuff I feel like at the time when I put it out so um it's been really wonderful to watch but it's so funny because I just kind of stumbled into that trope how fun is it to take an idea that we already know such as fairies and twist it and create your own mythology around them oh my gosh that's like one of my funnest that's like one of the funnest parts for me um when I get to um especially when it's like a new new idea I feel like those are the funnest when I get to sit down and not just create these characters who are going to be interacting with each other but getting to build a whole world with its own rules and um all these details that that get to come into play I love like I love having little details like interact with how little details interact with the characters with the world um like in the book there's she has a bracelet full of like their their beads but they represent IOUs for um favors that she favors she bought from this fairy essentially and this fake king and she has to repay them one day but he hasn't come to collect, at least not the very beginning of the book. <laughs> and um, it's stuff like that that I love, where they're just these little magical details, um, but they sort of make the world feel super real. And before we started, Lauren said that this was fairy smart. It is fairy <laughs> smart. Is there anything you have to consider when writing the sex scenes in the, these books? Um, I mean, I think again, just tying it back into um, if it's paranormal or fantasy, really anything that deviates from like contemporary. Actually, even then, I can't even say that. I think really when you do a sex scene, you really, I think to make it really fun or like really have its own presence, I think you have to incorporate some of the nuances and idiosyncrasies about the world or the characters. And I know in this series, there's, you know, magic. <laughs> magic plays a role in like the sexy times. There may or may not be a sex scene in the air because there's wings involved. <laughs> so there's really thing, there's really fun things like that that I feel like you've got to go for when you're writing just, you know, a fantasy or paranormal romance um, or sex scene. But I'm sure that <laughs> we can actually probably, you probably say that though about even contemporary, I'm sure, you know, depending on the character's backstories, there's definitely things in those scenes, I'm sure that you can incorporate to make them really fun too. But yeah. That sounds really acrobatic. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure, like, it's fun for a book. If you were to actually have to live out something like that, I think, I mean, I think I would protest. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I had wings, I'd try. <laughs> like a hundred percent the king of the night always collects his debts calypso lilis is a siren with a very big problem one that stretches up her arm and far into her past for the last seven years she's been collecting a bracelet of black beads up her wrist Magical IOUs for favours she's received. Only death or repayment will fulfil the obligations. And only then will the beads disappear. 
Everyone knows that if you need a favour, you go to the bargainer to make it happen. He's a man who can get you anything you want at a price. And everyone knows sooner or later he always collects. But for one of his clients, he's never asked for a payment. Not until now. When Callie finds the bargainer in her room, a grin on his lips and a twinkle in his eye, she knows things are about to change. At first, it's just a chase kiss. A single bead's worth and a promise for more. For the bargainer, it's more than just a matter of rekindling an old romance. Something is happening in the other world. Fay warriors are going missing one by one. Only the children are returned, each in a glass casket, a child clutched to their breast. And then there are whispers among the slaves, whispers of an evil that's been awoken. If the bargain has any hope to save his people, he'll need the help of the siren he spurned long ago. Only his foe has a taste for exotic creatures, and Callie just happens to be one. So with the story, what came first? Was it, I know you said that you were writing for the anthology, but was it the sort of idea, the plot, or the characters specifically? Oh, you know, I think it was actually definitely the characters first. Initially, in fact, the main character, she's a PI in this series, but initially I had made her a singer. So she's she's a supernatural being as well, but she's like a siren. And part of her ability is she has a type of magic called glamour. And when she uses her voice and she uses glamour with her voice, she can basically compel people to do things for her. And initially to me, I thought, oh my gosh, her being a singer like this, like this definitely is kind of seems more in line with the whole siren aspect. But, you know, I think as I built out, the plot came later and with the plot, you may, I made slight adjustments, but I definitely at the beginning just had a sense of, um, like one of the first scenes I saw in my mind's eyes was this, the characters know each other, they go back, but they've been apart for several years. And the sort of second meet cute is when the main character Calypso or Callie, as I call her, she comes into her house and walks into her bedroom and the bargainer, who's her love interest, is laying on the bed. And I just, and I just felt I had a very, I just could see that scene in my mind's eye. And that was one of the first scenes. And I just remember, okay, the main character, Callie is not happy to see him. Why is she not happy? And it's sort of like the plot built around some of these different like initial scenes I had in my head. And I almost reverse logic to them out to figure them out, like the plot <laughs> and the rest of the book, <laughs> essentially. And why did you pick a siren for Callie? So I actually... <laughs> I actually had written, I've written another, my first series that I ever put out is a YA that transitions into like new adult paranormal romance as well. And it, the main character in that one was a siren. I actually, I feel almost like the question is why did I choose to write another siren? Because <laughs> I feel like it could have been any magical creature. I'm not sure why I decided to go for the siren again, to be quite honest, but I was definitely comfortable with it because it was in the same sort of shared universe as a, a previous series of mine. And so I had already been writing a siren and I'd been really used to kind of like the magic system that I'd set up for that type of supernatural. So 
I, but to be quite honest, I'm not actually sure why I chose that to write again. I think I maybe just had a lot of fun writing that type of character because being able to compel someone with your voice is a pretty fun, it's a pretty fun magic system to play with. And it's really kind of on the knife's edge of morality. So <laughs> yeah. What draws you to Sirens? So obviously you've written this other book with Sirens in, you've written Callie. And she, when she thinks of other Sirens, I quite liked when she said, I wonder about those women, the ones who hung out on the rocks, calling out to sailors and coaxing them to their deaths. Did that, did it really happen that way? The myths never say. So is it the mystique that draws you to them? You know, I think when I first decided my first book to write, actually, I have no idea why I first decided to write a siren. I, I think there was definitely a part of me that wanted to write about sort of like a supernatural being that is not commonly covered. I feel like, you know, you see a lot of vampires, you see a lot of werewolves. And um, I think I wanted to, to play with something that was not, at least at the time, super, I hadn't really seen a lot of and put my own spin on it. I just think, like, I, I, I love, I loved that particular section two of the book where I talked about that backstory about like I wonder about like those early sirens because one of the other aspects of sirens is that they're very beautiful and in Callie's case she kind of talks about that her beauty was oh it was sort of used against her before it could ever empower her like you know and, and I thought that was kind of I just thought that was interesting because everyone holds beauty in such high regard but for her, she was victimized before she ever had power to go along with it. And I don't know, it was just kind of an interesting play because I think she really resented in a lot of ways this like quote unquote gift other people saw because it had hurt her. And so I don't know, I was just one of those fun, like why would she feel that way? Like why would she have this really complicated relationship with her own identity? And that kind of thought of hers about what happened to these other sirens sort of I felt like really it just I don't know I just it was fun it tied in it felt like oh that really makes sense too like these <laughs> these past sirens that might be luring sailors like why would a mythological siren want to do that like why would they want to drown men or smash boats against the rocks and you know it just felt, felt like it really tied in with the whole kind of backstory narrative of um Callie's own kind of past trauma is 16 a special age in the supernatural community? You know, it is. And I, <laughs> my publisher is like, really, you should move that up to 18. And I would, except um, when I wrote my um, YA series, I had made 16 the supernatural age of adulthood. And I had done that at the time because I wanted to write a YA book, but I wanted the characters to be able to have the agency of adults, to be able to do things that most teenagers wouldn't be able to do, like go places and stuff. And and get, you know, more responsibilities. But of course, uh, <laughs> now that I'm in the shared universe, I had to kind of carry that over. But that was actually kind of a leftover from my um, young adult series that I had written before I had written my Bargainer series. And so we meet the Bargainer on Callie's bed and we learn that actually she met him years prior when she'd gotten into a spot of bother. And in that moment, she made a deal with the bargainer previously. 
would you make a deal with the Wagner? Would I make a deal? Oh my gosh. <laughs> you know, if I was her age, probably. Now as a wizened 33-year-old woman, would I? Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> he's pretty uh, he's pretty compelling, but um <laughs> I can actually say definitely as a teenager, absolutely would have thrown good common sense out the window and made a deal. Um, as a 33-year-old, tough to say. I'm not sure I'm all that much more sensical. <laughs> <laughs> also, I think that people tend to be making these deals in rather desperate situations. So they they don't feel like they've got much of an option, I guess. Yes. For each deal, you can either get a bead or a tattoo. And Callie has uh, 322 beads. So is that number significant or did you just want to symbolize she has a lot of favors that she owes? Yeah, 322 is just some random number that popped into my head that just seemed like, can you curse on this? (laughs) Yes, yes. Okay, it seemed like a fuck ton of debt. And I felt like I really wanted to put that across, especially um, when later on you find out that for other clients of the bargainers like you don't really get more than like three debts owed before you have to start paying them off so it was highly unusual that she had that many and is there a reason that you picked black onyx as the material that they're made from yeah I um I picked it because I wanted something to represent the night sky something I think I have a line in there though it's been a while again since I've read it but a line in there about where the stones seem to absorb the light instead of reflecting it. And I just really wanted to give it the sense of like, she's walking around with a bit of the night kingdom on her wrist and the night sky on her wrist. From this point onwards, we dive into the world of fairy and spoilers. After the music, we move on to the next book in the series and we will be covering all four. If you aren't willing to make a bargain with Des to forget the spoilers, then come back when you've finished, as it might be a bargain you don't want to keep your end of. And talking about Rhapsodic, first of all, are they Des's wings on the cover? Yes, yes. That was actually, um, I really, really, really wanted to. In the original cover too, it has the wing. And actually, that wing I had picked out way back at the very beginning I just saw it on like um just to be honest it was like a stock photo site and mm-hmm. I just felt like it looked so perfect for for to represent his wings so um yeah it's kind of an ode to way back to the very beginning of the whole story one of my favorite characters was actually temperance and one of my least favorite characters was Eli and we'll get we'll get into him in a in a second But Callie breaks up with Eli when Des kisses her. And Temperance says to Callie, I'm pleased you grew a vagina and broke up with him, referring to Eli. He deserves better. And I love that. I love that she was there being like, you know, it's nice to have someone that would bring Callie back to down to earth. And and (laughs) she's like a best friend, you know, I, I love you. But actually, yeah, you should have broken up with him. Yes, I love I loved, loved, loved writing temper and her and Callie I feel like I just love the back and forth and that real honesty that you can have between girlfriends Eli seems like one of those men who 
you know the men that act like nice guys until they don't actually get what they want <laughs> and he really put her in danger going to her during the sacred seven so for people who haven't read the book the sacred seven is the week of the full moon correct correct yes it's the it's the full moon and then the three days on either side of the full moon and it's when the like a wool a werewolf lycanthrop whatever you want to call it with their um those are the days when they have least control over their ability to shift and so um yeah like like you see in the book they can't when their emotions run high they can kind of lose control and shift without meaning to and there's a bit of a, a confrontation between Eli, Des, and Callie. And Des shows his wings. They appear. And at the, this point, we don't really know what that means. But it's quite intimidating. And Eli backs off. And we learn later this is because it means that Callie is Des's. But we both were wondering, why didn't Eli listen when it was actually Callie's choice? Yeah, you know what? <laughs> Because I feel like you, you hit it right on the nose earlier. Eli is like, like you said, one of those almost like toxic nice guys where he's like a nice guy, but then he can't like, he can't really let it go. And part of it is, and I get part of that too. I wanted to have a play of like this whole idea of dominance, right? Where he was like an alpha a werewolf and in his pack, I don't really go into like a lot of the backstory of how these other supernatural groups work, but in his pack, he would get the official say, the last say, the final say. So um, he has dominance problems, essentially. Like he can't listen to someone who he thinks he outranks. And I think he sees Des a little differently which again is supposed to be like, you know, Eli was a little bit more complicated. You're not really supposed to like love the guy. So um, you're supposed to be pretty cool with him being kicked to the curb. <laughs> I think that's all well and good with the, like, the dominance thing in some circumstances. But if you choose to be in a relationship with somebody, it shouldn't be about dominance. Like he, I don't know, he needs to get that memo for future relationships. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I feel like that, I mean, you know, I feel like you can make parallels to our world about, you know, guys who think they're, um, I think they even use the same term as alpha. Mm. Which, <laughs> I feel like there's true, truly when I see the best sort of, I don't know what you would want to call it, dominance or whatever, it's really someone making space for another, like who's not threatened by someone else saying something they might disagree with who's not afraid of someone else taking up their own space because it doesn't overshadow them and they know that. And I feel like that's a distinction I try to tease apart between the main character or the love interest that uh, do end up getting with the main character and those that don't. <laughs> and I'm assuming that everyone who's at this point has read the book because we are in spoilers now, but the sleeping women who come back to the Night Kingdom and they're creepy kids, that was genuinely quite scary. And when they started saying all this weird stuff, I know <laughs> you did a really good job of making that hella creepy. <laughs> well, I'm glad. Yeah, that was definitely supposed to get under your skin. And mm. be, I really wanted some element of that too, to feel very fey, you know, like, I don't know, glass coffins, sleeping women, you know, um, that are not quite 
dead, but they're not alive either. And um, yeah, then they have these weird, <laughs> these weird creepy kids. I don't, there is nothing more unsettling than a creepy kid, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. I say, as, I say that as a mom. <laughs> I don't know. If your kids started saying that weird sort of stuff to you, like these kids, I'm sure that you wouldn't like your kids <laughs> in that moment very much. <laughs> right. Yeah, they were definitely, um, they were definitely supposed to feel very ominous. And another thing that was, was creepy is that, so they're looking for the thief of souls. And at this point he turns out to be Kanan, the king of fauna. Kanan kind of sort of plays with the women that he imprisons. That was creepy. That was definitely creepy. But was he always going to be the bad guy in the first book? Yeah, yeah. Actually, I um, I built that out. I just, you know, I I feel like it was sort of like I knew that I wanted. I mean, I don't, I don't know how many how many spoilers I should actually say here, but he's the reason why Carnon was um chosen as the bad guy was that. Um, he, so he's the king of Fauna. That's another one of the realms in the other worlds, which is the land of the Fae. And Karnon's mind had kind of been going. It had kind of been a little like kind of slipping as he had gotten older and older. And it sort of opened him up to essentially <laughs> kind of get, get possessed, essentially, is really what happened where you're not really clear is this Karnan or is this this other entity that is acting through him and yeah it's revealed in the end that maybe it wasn't Karnan after all but the entity using him that was doing all this really horrific stuff and at the end of the book Callie developed her own wings and scales and why did you have her evolve in this way is this going back to some of the siren mythology from your YA books. So actually in those books, no, the main character in my YA books never actually developed wings or claws or scales. I sort of, I'm not sure why I had decided to go in that direction. I kind of feel like that was a spur of the moment thing where I hadn't really planned that out, but then it just felt like, I feel like I read a lot of character driven stories. So at some point I feel like okay, these two Karnans using Kali essentially to, um, well, essentially the entity possessing Karnan is using Kali to get what he wants. And Karnan briefly kind of wrestles control in his own mind. I'm not, I don't know how explicit I make that appear on the page, but essentially when that happens, he, um, that's when he uses his magic to tease out Callie's um, kind of the like, kind of essentially sirens used to look like they used to have wings and claws and scales. And then as time went on, they turned into more just human looking things, but that that was always kind of latent. And because Karnon is the king of fauna, he's presides over fae that have animalistic tendencies he's able to pull out that kind of magic and manifest these things that had kind of lain dormant. So he did that knowing that in that particular scenario that it would basically trigger Des to kill him because he, he knew that he was, in some sense, he knew that he was 
being used in that moment for a bad entity to kind of do horrific things. So that was kind of him trying to stop this entity, basically. That's a very complex <laughs> backstory behind why that happened. And moving to book two, are they Kanon's horns on the cover? Yes, they were actually. And I um I I know that basically in book two he doesn't really show up, but um <laughs> that was actually a carryover from the antlers that I had in book one. And initially the antler was gonna be the cover of Rhapsodic, but I just thought that the wing, once like once my cover designer had made the cover with the wing, I was like, that has to be book one. So you get the antlers on book two, even though Carnon's kind of already been dealt with. <laughs> Is it the same cover designer for all of the books? Um, you know, it. I think if, this was just my publishing house. They're a design team that did these covers. Mm. The original ones were done by um, a company called Yonder Worldly that no longer, um, it's, no, it's closed down since. But um, all of the books in the on the original covers that was all made by the same designer and then these books were all made by my publisher so um yeah they're all made by the same each different set is all made by one designer in book two seeing the fairies from different fairy courts at solstice was so much fun so which court do you think you would want to be a part of oh gosh I feel like it's tough because I feel like if I didn't know any of the rulers, <laughs> I would probably want to be something like the Flora. I probably want to be in the kingdom of Flora. But, yes. um, <laughs> but now knowing kind of all the different rulers, I mean, I'd have to say Des, which is or the, king, the kingdom of night or the kingdom of day, um, since those are probably the most intact, like the rule, the leadership is pretty good. They're not too much of a of a hot mess, whereas the Kingdom of Flora and the Kingdom of Fauna are just <laughs> they they have issues at the moment. But just on the aesthetic, <laughs> just on the aesthetic, like where would I want to live? Like I could not live in a place that was day all the time, and I could not live in a place that was night all the time. And I just think that pretty much leaves Flora and Fauna, and I think I'd rather be around plants and flowers versus um like no 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 hate against animals <laughs> or animalistic fae but yeah I think I would just go with the flora kingdom I think the fae there would be prettier like I don't know if I could have sex with something with like antlers and things like that like I don't think I'd be down with that so yeah I feel like that's a particular type of kink mm. <laughs> on page 157 so Callie's been looking at books to sort of learn a bit more about all the different kingdoms and she she learns a little bit from a book called a brief history of the four kingdoms how much fun was it to sort of world build the different courts and some of their backstories like the backstory of flora with mara and talia that was really fun it was really fun i mean probably more fun for me than the readers necessarily because I feel like I feel like I've heard plenty of readers say uh just you know the, the second book was kind of boring in the beginning where they just are like she's just seeing the different king or like seeing the different parts of the night kingdom and reading about the histories but I really enjoyed it but you know I should probably also say that like 
I really wanted to go into a graduate program in archaeology. I have always just like, I, that's what I majored in. I did my like honors thesis on um, like an archaeological site in Peru. I just am, I have like, my bookshelves are just full of different books on the archaeology of different cultures in different, you know, different places in the world. And I just love that kind of stuff. I'm such a nerd for anything archaeological. Um, so for me, something like that, I really love like kind of these like backs. I just love backstory. And um, so that was a bit of a, that was a bit of me getting to um, have fun with that. <laughs> well, I loved it. I thought it was great. And I, anytime we heard backstory details I ate it up oh so, I'm glad to hear that <laughs> you made me happy <laughs> and I loved Callie for pretty much the whole series and she she can't really do much wrong one moment that I really really loved with her and I'm not saying this is the smartest thing she's done but I loved it <laughs> and it's when she was really upset over the treatment of humans in the flora court and I'm thinking specifically when she defended the woman who'd been raped and she took the woman's punishment. And it felt like such a powerful moment for her to do that. And I guess because she understands what that woman would have gone through. She wanted to help her. And I really hated Mara then. And I know it's a fairy way to kind of not be nice to humans, but she's a dickhead. <laughs> like... Yeah, she really was. That was actually, yeah, that was, um, I feel like that, I feel like that was one of the places in the book where I really wanted to show how it's the almost unsettling nature of some of these like fey realms where they, um, there's all this beauty and you can be really enchanted by it. But then some of these fey kingdoms have like, they treat the humans that they have the second class citizens essentially they um they're they're sort of used as pawns and stuff they don't have the same rights as fairies and they're kind of looked down upon because they don't have magic and they don't live as long they you know fairies live hundreds and hundreds of years and humans still live a mortal lifespan so it was sort of like this it was supposed to be kind of a scene where it's like even though the the night kingdom doesn't have these same issues there's other places in the other world that really struggle with very kind of barbaric laws and barbaric customs do you blame Callie for finding out about Des's past without his knowledge I know it's not the nicest thing to do but he's a man who loves secrets and I think considering everything that's happening, she kind of deserves to know. It's a bit more complicated than your average human partner's backstory. Yeah, so, you know, <laughs> I I think with a lot of this stuff, it's, he's also really not, I, I feel like there's a lot of, what's the right word? I feel like there's kind of struggles, not the right word, but conflict, there we go. <laughs> Such a simple word. <laughs> um, I feel like there are, there's a lot of conflict in relationships. And that was just one of those things where he keeps secrets and he doesn't really know how to, even though 
this is his soulmate. This is someone that he loves more than anything. It's still hard for him to, I feel like, fully sort of open himself up, even though Callie is his soulmate. So I, and I felt like that was just a very natural, that would be a conflict because obviously when you're in a relationship with someone, you know, you don't want to keep secrets, but it's also kind of part of who this whole identity he's built. Essentially, the backstory on that is he essentially built a lot of that to one, compensate for his own issues because way back when he didn't have as much magic so he made deals as kind of a way to leverage the power he did have and and then it became something where he secrets were kind of what he was dealing in when he knew he knew a long time before he found Callie that he had a soulmate out there and um he was coming he was using these like this idea of getting uh, deals off of desperate, desperate people, desperate humans to kind of search the world for the soulmate of his. So <laughs> that all being said, he did all of this for her, but now he doesn't really know. He still has to relearn how to actually be in a relationship where you don't deal in secrets. That will take a lot of unlearning. <laughs> yeah. On a lighter note, I was so here for the fashions. Anytime you learn about the dresses and any of the books, I could imagine them at the Met Gala. Oh, I know. I had fun with that too. Um, I <laughs> I feel like the goal was with all of the different fashion was trying to add some elements of it that you wouldn't see in the real world, you know, or just something fantastical about it. Like I think what they wore, I believe what they wore when they left the Kingdom of Night and went to the Flora Kingdom was clothing that was either made in part or totally out of spun moonlight so it kind of glowed and I just it's those kind of things are so fun and I think there might be another place in the books where I talk about stuff being like threaded with spider silk and just these little details that kind of make stuff feel a little magical even when it's just clothing yeah and like when he first takes her to the night kingdom and he makes her a crown of like fireflies it's just it was just magical yeah, I loved that. I love those. I mean, again, it's just, I love the little details. Moving to book three, did you always plan a prequel story? No, I didn't. You know what it really was? Well, to even back up even further, in book one, Rhapsodic, there's flashbacks to when Callie and Des first meet, which is when she is still, she's essentially still like, a, she's a student at Peel Academy. I mean, it's actually before then he helps her get in there. But that initially was, that's back, that was backstory to their like present day relationship. And that itself was never supposed to be in the book. I just wrote it trying to get a better feel of who these characters were. And the more I wrote, I think at some point I realized, wait, can I like plop each one of these different scenes in at the beginning of each chapter? Would that like line up to like this big reveal? And it actually like perfectly lined up. I don't just serendipity, it completely lined up. And so that's just what I did for that. And I think it was kind of the same thing where I was with, that was Callie's backstory. And then I think I was like, trying to write like does his backstory because those that was just kind of like a writing exercise for me to like 
what was this guy's thought process when, when all these different things were going on just to kind of better understand the character and be able to write him better in the books and again it ended up being like well this is kind of a pretty interesting life that he has you know like maybe I should just put this out there as a novella in case people want a little extra so that's kind of how it happened I hadn't really intended for any of the backstory initially to be published it just seemed it was really fun for me and then in the end it seemed like whoa I think maybe other people might want to read this I thought his mum was such a badass how she plotted to get away from his dad while she was pregnant to save them both and I guess that then follows on and makes sense that his soulmate would also be a strong woman yeah I um <laughs> I had so I had so much fun writing the mom too she just I don't know you know it's like you just want I do love I love a woman with a lot of heart and a lot of courage and I feel like when I again when I was a reader and I was reading books I always gravitated to the ones where these women just had strength that I was really envious of. And just over time, that's translated into something that I've tried to emulate in my own writing. We also see the moment when Des meets the other person that's really, really important to him in Malachi. There's loads of fighting and battles because they're part of the gang originally, and then they become soldiers for the night court as part of Des's big grand plan to get revenge on his dad (laughs) yeah and there's a moment on page 78 when Des realizes that Malachi would have died for him and the only person who would have ever done that for him was his mom who who did and for me it just made their friendship in all the other books just seem so much more special seeing what they've been through together and that Malachi would do that for him yeah, I um, I I I really understand too what you. I feel like sometimes characters, especially side characters, can just come off a bit one-dimensional, and it was really fun to be able to go into this. And I feel like Des is really all heart, and I feel like he had kind of growing up a pretty wounded one, and I just I, I stuff like that where it it just kind of for me for Des finding loyalty finding good people who sort of truly like had that same love and loyalty that his own mother had really to me kind of built up both his story and some of the stories of the characters around him such as Malachi. Talking of finding people Des learns through a prophetess that he will have a soulmate and that it's a human woman. Is he 100% guaranteed to find her? Obviously, we know that he does, but are there fairies out there that have soulmates and never meet them? You know, the, <laughs> I actually haven't played that one out far enough, but the idea is hypothetically, yes, that there that you could have a soulmate out there and miss them. I, I like, I haven't written <laughs> any stories where that happens, but it's kind of like this hypothetical that's really haunting. And I don't actually know if in the backstory, I haven't written it far enough to know if there have been specific fae figures that missed their soulmates. So to be quite honest, I haven't filled in that sense of um, that aspect of the world building, but it definitely was something where for Des, it really felt like, wow, if I don't take 
a real proactive approach at trying to find my soulmate, I could just live and die without her. It's too sad of an idea that someone would miss their soulmate. I know, right? <laughs> Especially someone who's like a fairy who lives for hundreds of years. <laughs> and obviously we know that they do find each other. So how much fun was it for you to revisit Des and Callie's early days from Des's point of view? It was actually so much fun. I feel like it kind of presented a little bit of a challenge because I had already had a lot of the dialogue written and everything. Um, from Rhapsodic where some of these especially some of the scenes where they're like in Rhapsodic they're not off the page they're like on the page because I had to read through all of that all of what I'd written in Rhapsodic and not just exactly what they said verbatim but also what Callie was thinking what she was feeling what her reactions were so that I could almost recreate them even though that was so challenging, I felt like in the end, it was so rich. Like, I just feel what I ended up writing was, I just felt like it was almost better off for having had this other perspective first. And then I feel like I could really delve into like why he reacted this way, if, especially if it was an unusual reaction, what was going on in his head, which um, was often a little bit complex. And um yeah, it was really fun. It was really challenging, but I loved how it turned out. Reading Rhapsodic for some of the flashbacks, you could argue that, oh, she's just a teenager with a crush. He helped her in the situation and he's quite hot and she's lonely. <laughs> Reading it from his point of view, you come to appreciate how romantic everything is. Yeah, I think something, and you know, I know that there are some people out there that really have a problem with the fact that these two knew each other when Callie was underage. And actually part of the whole issue that kept them apart was this diff, like it was kind of this moment when the magic essentially kept them apart because Des was like, I need to like, if this is starting to get romantic, I need to go away. And actually his magic was the thing that ended up making a decision on behalf of both of them. But what I really, I think some people have felt that that was uncomfortable, but what I actually really wanted to show in that was actually what true love can look like, where his interest is not taking advantage of her. His interest is in being her friend, um, is in making sure that she has this whole, this whole social life that doesn't involve him with her, him wanting the best for her even if that means removing himself from the situation. And he sort of struggles with his fey nature, which the whole idea, um, part of the world building and backstory is that like fays like in the past love to like snatch up brides, like human, human brides and men too. But uh, he kind of fights his own fey side that wants to take her. And that was kind of I know the climax for book one, but I felt like, especially he knew that she had had trauma, sexual trauma that had happened to her. And he was really adamant, like, this is not, I don't want her to think that, that all she is, all that men are good for is um, wanting to take advantage of her. And um, I really sought to show kind of his pure motives where he, he loves her, but he also wants what's best for her. I think if he really wanted to take advantage of her, he could have. 
Yeah, easily. But you know, I know that it gets uncomfortable for people who, you know, <laughs> I grew up, I grew up reading a bunch of books where they're teenagers who were, you know, with vampires that were much, much older. <laughs> so, you know, I loved that stuff as a teenager. Now it's a different time. There's definitely like people are more like, yeah, we don't know about that. But I, when I wrote this series, the um, attempt was really also to show that love doesn't always look like how we in our minds think it, that you can, with your soulmate, you want what's best for them, even if it's not what's best for you. I mean, there's also Twilight where one of them imprints on a baby. So (laughs) yeah, there's that. (laughs) And everyone seemed cool with that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Renezme. <laughs> worst name ever. I mean, worst storyline ever. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I remember too. I found, I remember I used to just stock the shelves at, not stock as in put the books in, but stock as in like look for new books like as soon as they came in. And I remember Twilight had come into our bookstore like, a week or two but before it had officially released and I remember being like what is this with the apple and I read it and was like oh I love this and this was about uh one or two years before it really like blew up and I remember being so in love with it and I think I'm not positive but I think that that must have been an idea where the author Stephanie Meyer she just she just had one complete book idea in her head and then it did well and she was like okay I gotta I gotta make some more books <laughs> for this series and um versus her having this whole four book series planned from the very beginning moving on to your fourth book oh. are they Callie's wings on the cover of the fourth book yes they are and um I think in the original fourth book um, they were trying to, my, the design team was trying to keep to the original covers and the symbols on all of them, but the symbol on the, la- on the last original cover had been like a sword. And I love it that they changed it to the wings because I feel like there's so much more there, you know, just like the first book had Dez's wing. The last book has Callie's and yeah, I just loved that. At the end of the second book, Des gives Callie the lilac wine to save her life, but it makes her fay. Do you blame her for being angry? And it's not like he could just ask her. It is a big <laughs> decision, but it's not like he could have asked her if if this is what she wanted. Yeah, I, you know, I don't blame either of them. I think it's one of those situations where everyone's entitled to feel how they feel, where, you know, she they never had a discussion on what to do if something like my life is on the line um and I think yeah she could probably cut him a little slack because like he was just trying to save her life and there's like no way he would do it any differently (laughs) but I also get that for her it was more that there was no choice and now it puts her because of the way it interacted with her magic that was basically kind of like a situation that was like a bit manufactured by the big baddie throughout the series who I call the thief of souls he had kind of done that because once that he has an interest in Callie throughout the series and once 
she's given the lilac wine her she is now susceptible to his magic whereas before she had been kind of immune to it as a human it just fey magic and human magic doesn't always interact it doesn't always interact correctly there's it kind of can like sometimes it works with each other and sometimes it doesn't work so um but now that she's had the lilac wine and become fey in a sense she now her magic can now interact with fey and it can also be susceptible to kind of attacks in this case by the thief of souls on page 97 they go to the banished lands and there they meet I don't know if he's just a self-proclaimed or if he's actually kind of earned this title but he's king of the banished lands now I am not saying that he's especially nice and it is true at this point that they could just get what they wanted from Callie glamouring him but I feel like Des's arrogance towards him was kind of unnecessary you know <laughs> I think too it might have even been more extreme <laughs> before I feel like that was something that got edited a little bit um and I cannot remember exactly what the situation was but um I mean I think all those people that were in the banished lands were in there for pretty good reason and um they uh essentially if you get banished to the banished lands the, the, those lands have been robbed of magic there's really nothing left and the king of the banished the self-proclaimed king of the banished lands is the king because what little magic is there which is usually what resides in other fairies he's basically taken advantage of so he's basically using all these other people that are also banished fey basically taking advantage of them to gain as much power as he can and does his reaction is more like he doesn't see power that preys upon other people as worthy of getting sort of any sort of recognition and I think that again probably just ties back into my whole idea of Des's own issues with his father who would kind of do anything for power and throw anyone under the bus and kill tended to kill off his kids um to avoid getting usurped by one of them. I mean, I'm glad that he got his comeuppance because the King of the Banished Lands was awful. <laughs> but still. On page 137 and 38, Callie sees a painting in the day court called, I'm hoping I pronounced this properly, The Banishment of Eurobos. <laughs> you know what I feel like with some of those words you know your guess is as good as mine I read them on paper but I am in no way an expert on pronunciation <laughs> but you know you remember the painting that I mean I I I believe I do you're like totally reminding me of all these things that I have to be quite honest I'm like oh that's right I wrote about that <laughs> <laughs> and I was just wondering if you had some inspiration for where it come from it came from because this painting does it I think it becomes relevant, but one of the subject matters becomes relevant. What, what page is this on again? I have my book right here, but I'm... Oh, 137 and 38. Okay, let me see. Off the top of my head, though, I feel like it was just me adding in another fancy little description and kind of doing, I like putting in little like nuggets for, you know, I, I do plan on writing other books that take place in these other realms. And so... I like putting in little nuggets to play upon <laughs> in future books, but I'm not sure. Oh, The Banishment of Eurebios. Yes. Um, it depicts the fight between Brennus, the god of light and order, and Eurebios, the god of darkness and chaos. 
Yes. It was like the description of it. It That's sounds like something you'd see in a gallery. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, it wasn't based off of any sort of real painting or anything, um, but it is a little bit of like, kind of a little bit of, I don't know if foreshadowing is the right word. It's a bit of like, kind of, it kind of ties into essentially the thief of souls and kind of what's going on there. Well, when Callie works out who he is on her own, well, kind of not, not specifically as such, but she tells Des what she's sort of worked out. And I was quite impressed that she's quite smart. But then later you find out that Des knew. And I know that he couldn't tell her, but is there not a way he could have maybe like hinted discreetly? <laughs> I mean, honestly, I have, I have to be honest. I have no idea. <laughs> it's been so long. And these details are so sharp that I... Um... <laughs> I'm sure that I probably, to be quite honest with you, that situation was probably like, yeah, if I did that, it would open up a plot hole <laughs> or it would really showcase a plot hole where- I mean, probably. <laughs> <laughs> this is, it was probably something like that where it wasn't the smoothest thing ever, but it was probably like me like, well, that's gotta be the explanation because I sort of already wrote the other stuff. <laughs> like, sort of dug my own grave here. <laughs> we've had people say that before when we ask, ask some questions it's like because plot yeah, yeah because plot I feel like some sometimes it's just like that where you're like you realize you accidentally wrote yourself into a corner and you can't really write yourself out so you just kind of have to wing it the best <laughs> you can <laughs> and I mean I hate that that happens but unless you like wait for an author to write like a full series before they start releasing it it like sometimes that stuff comes up yeah we we interviewed someone and in their in their story there's like a, a sleeping sickness that the the characters all get apart from this this one character and we said oh why wasn't that character affected and they said because otherwise there'd be no book I was like <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah I feel like some of that stuff especially like oh this was like um she did something that was really kind of stupid. And it's like, you know, I just couldn't think of anything better to push the plot forward. <laughs> <laughs> We've all had a saddle here. <laughs> well, back to your book. When you find out that the Thief of Souls could wear the faces of the dead, I was just like, nope, <laughs> not here for that. I don't do... <laughs> I barely do creepy. I don't do scary. And that was a bit too much. It was almost too much for me. It's so funny you say that because I can't watch horror. Like I can't, which, and actually too, I have another series out that's the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. And that one is gruesome in some other ways. And it's really, <laughs> I find it really ironic that I've written these things because I will not, for the life of me, I will not watch a horror. I can't do it. I, yeah, I'm with you. There's like, I'm, there's a lot of things that creep me out. I even have to control myself watching true crime because I start to get a little anxious <laughs> if I watch too much of it. And um, so it is pretty funny that I ended up, I think when it's coming from your own mind, it's not quite as scary because you're kind of like thinking about it from like usually like a very technical standpoint and like ooh, like what would what would really like heighten the stakes here and this you know and you're like oh that's good you know and you're not thinking this is terrifying 
So, <laughs> so apologies, apologies, because <laughs> I myself um, cannot handle very much horror. Apology accepted. <laughs> Secrets are meant for one soul to keep. And we hear this line come up throughout the books. So are we supposed to think that Des has a secret plan that he's been weaving for so long? Because I was, when you find out exactly how much Des has been plotting, I was kind of impressed. Yeah, I um, I think this was someone, I mean, I think he was, the Thief of Souls was someone he had been tracking for a while. And that was something that he had been, working on for I mean years I mean I think it's even mentioned in Rhapsodic some of the backstory he's essentially trying to get a confession out of a guy who might have connections to the thief of souls so he's been kind of and he's been losing soldiers and I mean essentially citizens in his kingdom lots of them to this guy and he's seeing that it's happening with all the kingdoms so he is trying to use as much of his like secret gathering abilities to try to ferret out this guy. And it only becomes personal once the thief really like, once Callie catches his eye. So then it's kind of like, he now needs to really pull it together fast. One thing that we did enjoy was that you give us a flash forward into the future. And I'm so so happy that we get to see Des and we get to see Callie but I want to know what happens between Temper and Malachi they're so cute (laughs) I actually I have intended to write a spin-off series and I haven't really done much plotting on that one but yeah I do intend to um you know revisit those two and essentially give temper her story and her happily ever after so i won't say anything on that because um (laughs) it's still being plotted out but yeah yeah that was uh those two are pretty fun they are so cute and i want nothing but happiness and (laughs) lots of good sex for them (laughs) that's all we really want Well, thank you so much for talking to us. And I really, really enjoyed having some fairy smut for Valentine's Day. Paranormal Romance was my absolute jam in my early 20s and I read stacks of it. So these made me very happy. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you so, so much for having me. And it's been such a joy to talk to you ladies. You've kind of said that you would like to do a story for Temper and Malachi, but what else do you have coming up in the future? Oh, I have my next book is coming out April 18th, 2023. Um, so in a couple months and it's called Bewitched. And it also takes place in the same shared universe as my Bargainer series. But this one focuses on a witch named Celine and the she's woken up in ancient evil and he believes that she's his wife who betrayed him. <laughs> so... So she's kind of in hot water and yeah, it's really fun. And I actually feel like if I've had one reader, it's just now, just now people are starting to read advanced copies of the book. And I've already had one reader say, oh, this is really fun. It in a lot of ways reminds me, it has the same feel as the Bargainer series. 
So yeah, if you guys are fans of essentially paranormal, it's this one's totally paranormal, paranormal romance. There's not going to be any other world. I don't think there's going to be any other world <laughs> trips, but yeah, I, I think, I think if you read paranormal romance, then this is another one that'll be similar to the Bargainer series. Oh, this is the enemies to lovers romance that you mention in yeah, your author's I, um, note. I, <laughs> I'm really, yo, is that right? I, <laughs> you know, I'm kind of a hot mess myself. I, uh, I didn't realize I had it in my author's note, but I, uh, yeah, I'm really excited about this. This one has been um, a real joy to write. So, yeah. But again, I just love paranormal romance. So, where can people go to follow you online, keep up to date with any announcements or any events you may be doing? Oh, honestly, pretty much any social media platform. I'm most active on Instagram and then Facebook. Um, I'm also active on Goodreads, actually, but I have social media presence just about everywhere. And then you can also find me at my website, which is laurathalasa.com. We will put those in the episode description so people can find you. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for coming to talk to us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for hanging out with us today. And again, special thanks to Laura. Follow us on Instagram at Demythifying the Podcast because we have seriously exciting guests coming on this year. Also check out our website at www.demythpod.co.uk. I've been Lauren, she's been Charlotte, and today we've been making bargains and turning pages with Laura Thalassa.